From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha. Today is Monday, May 2nd, and we are here to study Torah together as we do Monday through Friday every single day at noon. Brand new Torah portion. Well, first of all, brand new month. I should wish everybody a Chodesh Tov. Today is Rosh Chodesh, actually the second day of Rosh Chodesh. This month, ER has two days. So yesterday was Rosh Chodesh. Day one, and today is Rosh Chodesh day two, although it's the second day of Rosh Chodesh, but officially it's the first day of the month of Iyar. And I should mention before we jump into the parsha that Iyar is known, you spell Iyar um, Aleph, Yud, Yud, Resh. That's how you spell Iyar, Aleph, Yud, Yud, Resh. And the good books tell us that that is also an acronym, and it stands for three Hebrew words. Ani is for the Aleph, and then the Yud Yud is a way of, uh, it's a euphemism for Hashem's name. So Ani Hashem, and the Reish is for Rofecha, which means, it's actually a verse from the Torah, I am Hashem, I am God, your healer. So indeed, this month should be a month of blessing and a month of healing, whether it's physical healing, spiritual healing, or all of the above, it should be a month of healing and blessing and only goodness. All right, so that's a little bit about ER. Today is uh, the first day of ER. So we're going to start with a, with, a, with a great energy and jump into the Torah portion. So I'm going to share my screen, and let's jump right in. Torah portion this week is Kedoshim. Kedoshim means holy. And in, uh, in, well, that's in the diaspora in Israel. As you see here, it's the Torah portion of Emmer, but we're here in Atlanta. We are doing Kedoshim. Leviticus chapter 19 Verse number one, we're going to begin right now. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the entire congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, so far we haven't had the name of the the Torah portion yet. Here we go. Kedoshim to you, you shall be holy. So that word holy, that's the name of the Torah portion, Kedoshim. You shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. So God is essentially saying that you should be holy. Why? Because I, God, am holy. So it's kind of like, if we're meant to follow in God's ways, then just like God is holy, so then it would make sense, it would follow that we too should be holy. That's, uh, that's the logic as it rolls out over here. We're going to have other commentaries on this, and we're going to have other insights on this, um, but for right now, let's, let's leave it like this. Hey, Olya, welcome. It's great to have you. So let's continue verse number three. So first of all, be holy. Second of all, every man shall fear his mother and his father. So now we have this notion of fearing parents. Now, fearing parents doesn't necessarily mean to be in in actual fear of, you know, like, what are they going to do? It's more of like a sense of awe or respect. So reverence, right? So fear, respect, reverence, should be for one's mother and father, and there's a specificity for that order, which we'll talk about in a moment. So that's the first mitzvah, or I mean, well, Kedoshim to you is probably the first one, you shall be holy, but then we have about fearing mother and father. And then the Torah says, and you shall observe my Sabbaths. Keep Shabbat. I am the Lord your God. I should mention, before we get too entrenched in the the Torah portion, that Kedoshim has a lot of mitzvahs. There's a lot of mitzvot. Of the 613, there's quite a few that are in this week's Torah portion, and it kind of moves quickly. There's going to be a lot of, uh, a lot of variety through our discussion. So, so far, we've had a general commandment to be holy, which we'll talk about how that's actionable in a moment. We have this idea of fearing or respecting our parents and the idea of observing Shabbat. Okay, let's continue. Verse 4. You shall not turn to the worthless idols, nor shall you make molten deities for yourselves. 
So don't turn to worthless idols and don't make a molten deity for yourself. Very specific. I am the Lord your God. Molten, molten God, a molten deity is kind of like made out of cast metal. Don't make that type of idol or God for yourself. Let's continue. When you slaughter a peace offering to the Lord, you shall slaughter it for your acceptance. We'll look at Rashi on that in a moment. It may be eaten on the day you slaughter it and on the morrow. So you, when, when you offer us a peace offering, you can actually eat it. Some offerings you can only eat that day and the night, and then it has to be burned by the next morning. The peace offering, the shlamim, which we've talked about extensively toward the beginning of uh, this book, the book of Leviticus. So the shlamim, the peace offering, which some of it went on the altar, some of it was eaten by the Kohen, and some was eaten by the one who brought it, uh, by the individual who, who brought it to the temple. So you're allowed to eat that offering on the day that you bring it and the next day. But anything left over until the third day shall be burned in fire. So you can eat it for two days and two nights. And then on day number three in the morning, by that time, it has to be finished or burned. You cannot eat it any longer. And if it would be eaten on the third day, let's say you're like, well, I don't mind leftovers. Three days, I don't mind. I'll put it into a salad. Yeah, whatever. It'll freshen it up a little bit. No, Hashem says, not about you. It's not about you not liking it. I don't like it. It is abominable. It shall not be accepted. It's going to mess up your, um, your offering. You brought the offering and it was great. And then you ate it on the third day. It's all about timing. And whoever eats it shall bear his sin. Because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people. Well, there you go. That's a pretty serious uh, consequence for eating it past the expiration date of the offering. Uh, let's continue. We're going to go through all these. Then we'll go back one by one. That's how I want to do this. All right. When you reap the harvest of your land, moving very quickly in different topics of Jewish law, when you reap the harvest of your land, so you have land in Israel, your land means Israel, you're a farmer, you have a harvest, and now you're cutting it and bringing it in. You shall not Fully reap the corner of your field. Don't cut and take in the foods or the produce in the corners of the field. Nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, which we'll clarify in a moment. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you collect the fallen individual grapes of your vineyard. Rather, all of these, the corner of your field, the gleanings, the stuff that's fallen, all of these Food items, agricultural items that can be eaten, you shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And here we have what many have called a sense of compassionate capitalism, which means you're allowed to have a field and you're allowed to have, you know, you can sell your produce and eat it and it's yours. God says it's your land. However, don't forget where you got it from. It's your land, but you have to give some of it to the poor person, to the stranger, to the refugee, etc. Somebody who needs it has to have what they need to survive. In the Jewish, in the, in the Jewish um, communal system, there was always a mechanism for anyone who, went, who was hungry to come and eat. That is the, it was embedded or was um, inherent in the system of society, the system of community, and the system of law and ethics. Let's continue again, moving very, I was going to say all over the place, but very swiftly through various topics of Torah law and, and Torah mitzvot. Verse 11, you shall not steal. You shall not deny falsely. You shall not lie one man to his fellow. You shall not swear falsely by my name, thereby profaning the name of the Lord, the name of, the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your fellow. You shall not rob the hired worker's wage, by the way, there's a difference between stealing and robbing. Stealing is breaking in in the middle of the night and grabbing something. Robbing is brazen, right? Person to person. It's straight up, right? This is a stick up. Freeze. I know somebody. Oh, the, there's a famous, the famous bit, I forget by who, the comedic bit, where the guy says, your money, your life. 
And the guy doesn't respond. Your money or your life? He says, doesn't respond. Like, What's going on? He's like, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. No, but that's one, that's one bit. But the other one is, I actually know, I may have heard this about somebody, somebody specific, lived in Miami. I think lived in Miami. And uh, some, some guy came over to him and said, freeze. And he said, I'm not even cold. And I believe he got shot for that, for that quip. You know, I guess, I guess the moral of the story is someone says, freeze. <laughs> Better to freeze than to, uh, to make a joke about it. No, but he was, uh, he, he was fine. Um, but that's, that's a story that I've heard. The legend, as it were, with the Chabad rabbi there. Um, but anyway, as it were, the point is, this is a message to all those would-be criminals, no stealing and no robbing, the Torah prohibits. The hired worker's wage shall not remain with you overnight until morning. Hey, Mark, good to see you. Welcome. So if you hire someone, you got to pay him. You can't, you can't pocket the money. You can't keep the money with you. If he's a day worker, day laborer, you got to pay him before he leaves. You shall not curse a deaf person. You shall not place a stumbling block before a blind person. And you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. We went through uh, how many? Maybe a dozen or so mitzvot already. We're going to go back all the way to the beginning and go through these one at a time with Rashi and some insights that I wish to share as well. But I wanted to get like a bit of a, a scope of what the, uh, a sense of the scope of this reading. Okay, here we go. Rashi says, when God tells Moses to speak to the entire congregation, this teaches us, Rashi says, that this passage was stated in the assembly of the entire congregation of Israel. Why? Because most of the fundamental teachings of the Torah are dependent on it. In other words, so much of, of Torah is dependent on the messages that we are learning right now. And that's why everyone had to be there. Everyone had to gather to hear Moses relay these mitzvot. You shall be holy. What does that mean, you shall be holy? Kedoshim to you. Rashi says, separate yourselves from sexual immorality and from sin. For wherever one finds a barrier against sexual immorality, one finds holiness. Okay. For example, they, the Kohanim, shall not take in marriage a woman who is a prostitute or one who is profaned. I, the Lord who sanctifies you, am holy. So we see a juxtaposition uh, between holiness and the idea of abstention from immorality. Um, okay, and then there's other verses that act as a proof text of that. But the point that Rashi says, that when the Torah says, you shall be holy, without specifying, what does that mean? Should I be fasting once a week? Should I give a lot of tzedakah? Should I study a lot of Torah? What, what does it mean to be holy? So Rashi says, don't engage in immoral relationships. Done. There you go. Okay, you shall be holy. That's, that's how to fulfill that. Next, every man shall fear... By the way, there are other commentaries on this. And I should probably reference the Ramban, Nachmanides. We just studied Rashi. Rashi is the fundamental uh, commentary on the Torah, the, 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 the bread and butter. But there are other commentaries. Ramban, Nachmanides famously writes... That Kedoshim Tiyu means Kadesh Atzmach which means sanctify yourself in the realm of the permissible. And let me stop sharing and let's schmooze about this for a moment. There are things that the Torah says you cannot do. Well, those things we shouldn't do. But what about the things that Torah doesn't talk about? The things that are, shall we say, kosher. Should we indulge in the permissible? So Kedoshim Tiyu, according to some commentaries, it comes from the, from the Talmud as well, Kedoshim Tiyu, be holy, can also mean that when it comes to that which is permitted, take it easy, right? Kosher steak might be kosher, and it is kosher, hence the name kosher steak, but maybe we shouldn't go too overboard, right? We should keep things in a, uh, we shouldn't be too gluttonous about it. Um, yes, there are relationships that are, that are considered to be incestuous and, and immoral in Torah, as we read last week. And then there are relationships that are healthy, that are kosher. But even in those relationships, can we create healthy boundaries to make sure the relationship is a healthy relationship? And again, I'm not going to get into specifics, but the point is to have healthy, what I would call healthy 
boundaries, even within the realm of the permitted. This is what some commentaries say the Torah is telling us when it tells us be holy. Be holy means even in the areas that are permitted, take it easy. Take it easy and create, create uh, a sense of, of boundaries, healthy boundaries, even within the realm of the permitted. So for example, for example, I've told this story before. Um, my first introduction to this, well, I don't know if this is a great example. I was a kid. I was 13 years old. I was away in overnight camp in New Jersey, Morristown, New Jersey. And it was one of the summer fasts. There's two fasts over the summer, the 17th of Tammuz and the 9th of Av, Tisha B'Av, which is a 25-hour fast. That's a big one, Tisha B'Av. Um, I forget whether it was the first one or the second one. Either way, the fast was over. Everyone runs downstairs to the cafeteria to get food. And I remember there were those that said, you know what? Look, the fast is over. We can eat. We'll, we'll let it go for another five minutes. Just another five minutes, like not running to the food. It's like, uh, it's, it's idea of self-control. Even when it's permitted to exercise some self-control. And honestly, aside from the spiritual value, I believe that it makes us healthier people when we have a sense of discipline and a sense of self-control. It's just overall, it creates a healthier lifestyle, healthier human being. So the point is like this. I tell my kids this. You know, imagine, because we went to a Braves game last week. Imagine you go to Battery Park. That's the area around Braves. And imagine if all the restaurants there were kosher. Yeah? Can you imagine? Right? Kosher steakhouse, kosher burger place, kosher uh, pizza place, kosher dessert place. The whole deal. Imagine everything was kosher. Yeah? How much would you eat? It's a question, right? Just because it's kosher doesn't mean you should order one of each. So it's, again, it's not only about physical health. It's about a sense of being in control in our lives. It's a sense of, 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 um, of boundaries and I don't know what the right word is. Um, yeah, a sense of being in control. Discipline. That's the word I'm looking for. Sense of discipline. So Kadesh Asmach means even in the realm of the permitted, discipline, and that is holiness. Holiness is found in the moments, in those areas of life in which we're able to say, I don't need it. I could have it, but I don't actually need it. Okay. And, and by the way, this is, this is a helpful way to differentiate between needs and wants, which again makes for a healthier, overall a healthier lifestyle. Let's jump back into the text. Um, we did that. Okay. Every man shall fear his mother and father. Our quick, quick question yes. before you go further. Sure. Um, wasn't either Zona or uh, Halala, wasn't one of those at the four seat? Or am I wrong? No. No, no okay. divorcee. No. no, no, not, a, not, not, no, not, not those words. Not the okay. Yeah. All right. Now we Sorry. the next no verse. The next verse three is every man shall fear his mother and his father, and you shall observe my Sabbaths. So the question is, why is the order first mother and then father? Rashi addresses this. Here we go. Here, Scripture mentions the mother before the father. Why? Because God is privy to the fact that a child fears his father more than his mother. Again, your mileage may vary. Not every family is like this. But in many families, the father is more of the uh, figure that's feared, whereas the mother is more of the loving persona. And therefore, Rashi says, or at least the parentheses explain, by mentioning mother first, Scripture emphasized the duty of fearing her also. However, in the case of honoring one's parents, Scripture mentions the father before the mother because God is privy to the fact that a child honors his mother more than his father since she wins his favor by speaking kind and loving words. Therefore, by mentioning the father first in the context of honor, Scripture emphasizes the duty of honoring him also. In other words, the question is, what would you, who would you naturally honor more and who would you naturally fear more or, respect, or be in reverence of more? And then the Torah reverses it to tell you kind of compensating for the one that might be left out. So when it comes to honor, so yeah, of course I'm going to honor my mother. Of course I love my mom. No, honor your father and your mother. Not, not to, not to de-emphasize mother, but to emphasize father, because otherwise we might forget about, potentially, right? Again, your mother may vary. Every family is different. Dynamic is different. When it comes to the mother, the Torah emphasizes mother first when it comes to, sorry, when it comes to fear, or awe, or reverence, respect, mother comes first, again, to emphasize 
what might be not so intuitive. So we tell a child, even though you naturally, you know, you go to your mom for hugs and your father, like if you misbehave at school, your dad may be the one to like set things straight. Nonetheless, make sure to, uh, to respect and fear your mom. Your dad, uh, it's going to come naturally perhaps, but make sure mom gets that sense, same sense of fear and respect. All right, back in. So here the Torah essentially is compensating for what might be something that is de-emphasized. And observe, yes. Um, in my translation, they don't use fear. They use revere. Yeah. Yeah, I mentioned before that fear is not a great, it, it's, it's a bit of a, it's a word that evokes sometimes some measure of ugliness. So yeah, awe, respect, reverence would be, would be terms that I think we can relate to a little bit more and are more accurate to the message. Um, okay, and observe my Sabbaths. So Rashi explains, Scripture juxtaposes the commandment of observing sa- of the Sabbath, Shabbat, with that of fearing one's father and mother. Why? In order to state the following principle. Although I have admonished you regarding the fear of your father, nevertheless, if he tells you to desecrate the Sabbath, do not listen to him. In other words, listen to your parents. And then the Torah says, observe Shabbat, which means that if your parents tell you to break Shabbat, don't listen to them. In other words, listen to them only insofar as they don't tell you to violate a mitzvah. And as Rashi says, this is also the case with all the other commandments. We learn from Shabbat for all of the mitzvot, which means like this. Somebody says, you know, I want to honor a parent's wishes. And my parents asked me to do this, but it's against Jewish law. What do I do? This comes up very, very often. I will say it's a sensitive topic, but I'm going to go there anyway. Um, when a parent passes away, and let's say the parent's wishes were um, cremation, let's say, for example, and Torah, Jewish law, halacha, right? It's a mitzvah to bury a person, not to cremate them. So the question that this comes up, you know, not, not all, to, all the time, but it comes up often enough, and the child is now, the child is sensitive to Jewish law, but the child also wants to be sensitive to the wishes of the parent. So what do you do? Right, the parent wanted cremation, but Jewish law says burial. So what do you do? And many people would say, from an emotional perspective, emotionally, you gotta, you got to follow the wishes of the parent. But we have two, two items here. Number one, the Torah itself says, through this juxtaposition, that if a parent says, go against the Torah, you don't listen to the parent. So if the parent says, violate halacha, violate Torah, with all due respect to the parent, you, you still can't do that. You still, it's still, not, still not, not kosher, number one. Number two, we say that certainly the parent, as they are in the world of truth, you know, in that spiritual state, having the soul having left the body, certainly the parent at this point wants all of the Torah's wishes to be upheld, and therefore you're not going against the parent's wishes, you're going with the parent's true wishes, as they certainly are feeling it right now, in this moment, after the soul has departed the body. Anyway, that's just an aside and and a practical, um, uh, you know, application of this that comes up in a very emotional, obviously it's extremely, extremely emotional, and a difficult, you know, difficult conversations, but that's 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 the reality of, of how halacha at least would look at how Jewish law would look at this. But it, it could come up in any situation if a parent tells a, a child to uh, anything that's against Jewish law, forget life and death, you know, anything against Jewish law, uh, the child is not obligated to listen to the parent over God. Essentially, we the child and the Talmud discusses this. We tell the child you have to follow who the parent. Don't follow your parent. Follow who your parent is obligated to follow, which is God, because your parent also has to follow God. Rabbi Ar. Yes. I've got a note here. What is Midchus Yehuda Sifsei Chachamit? It's all, all commentaries. Yeah. I've got a note which concludes. It says the Torah therefore adds the apparently superfluous "I am Hashem, your God" to teach us that obeying the word of God takes precedence right. over obeying the parent. Right. And it's because obeying God is, 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 um, what's the word I'm looking for, is, uh, is binding both for the child and the parent. The parent's also uh, on the hook for that. So the parent doesn't have the leeway of saying, oh, you don't have to listen to God. <laughs> the parent has to listen to God also. Okay. Um, good. Let's continue. Oh, by the way, 
The next Rashi is very practical. What constitutes fear? Again, it's not really fear. Reverence. One must not sit in his place. This is very important, by the way. This is practical halacha. Do not sit in the chair in the place of your parent. Do not speak in his stead when it is his father's turn to speak or contradict him. Unless you do that respectfully. Like, I think I learned once that, etc. There's ways to correct the parent, but don't, don't uh, speak disrespectfully to contradict them. And that's all, all, all of that is reference. What constitutes honor? Rashi says, one must give the father and mother food and drink, clothe them and put on their shoes and accompany them when they enter or leave. And no, it doesn't mean if your parent is able-bodied that you should dress them every day. I mean, that sounds a little extreme. What we're referring to is really as a parent gets older and can no longer eat and drink uh, easily on their own or get dressed or put on their shoes or, you know, go out shopping and whatever, and they need help, it's an obligation to the child to help the parent. As the Talmud discusses this, and as the commentaries discuss it, they, they, they use the following uh, language. It's simply hakaras hatov. Hakaras hatov means um, gratitude. Gratitude. So honoring our parents, so respecting parents means don't sit in their place. They don't have a seat. Don't contradict them. Don't interrupt them. That's not, it's not nice, not respectful. Respect your parents. So that's one mitzvah. Honor your parents means love them the way they loved you. When you were a kid, when you were a baby and you couldn't eat, your parents figured out a way to feed you, good. When your parent gets older and they can't eat, help your parent eat. When you were a kid and a baby and you couldn't dress yourself, right? You dress, you, 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 your parent dressed you, dress, help your parents get dressed. When you were a child and couldn't, you know, you couldn't go out yourself. You had to be driven places. You had to be physically held by the hand. You had to be carried. Good. Do the same for your parent. People think that honoring your parents mean, means, you know, the Torah says, honor your parents. One of the Ten Commandments. Honor your parents. It means that when you're a kid, you should clean your room when your parents ask you to. Sure, that's also the case. But that's a very trivial understanding. The real challenge of honoring parents, as anyone who's lived a few years knows the real challenge of honoring parents is when they get older and need a lot of help. That's when the mitzvah really kicks in. Ideally, we do it ourselves. Personally, we take care of our parents when they get older. If we can't, if we absolutely can't, then of course we should see to it that they are taken care of, um, that they have the help that they need. But either way, it's the child's responsibility to take care of the parent as it was. And that's it's straight up like a recompense. It's like, a, a, um, it's hakar satov. It's, it's, it's mirroring what they did for us, we're doing for them as they get older. That being said, there's a rabbi in the Talmud who quips um, that it's hard to get kids sometimes to help out parents. He says, one parent will take care of 10 sons. But 10 sons can't even muster, sometimes can't even muster enough resources to help one, one, one father, one, you know, one set of parents. It's the way it works. The way it works is that uh, you know, parents will do anything for their kids, and the kids, not always. Now, not always not, but not always yes. So the Torah is encouraging us and mandating us to not be like that, but rather to take care of our parents when they get into that state of vulnerability. All right, let's continue inside. That's regarding the mitzvah of revering parents and uh, observing Shabbat. Okay, do not turn to the worthless idols, verse 4, Rashi says, to serve them. Okay, no molten deities. Um, Rashi explains at first they're worthless idols. But if you turn after them, eventually you will make them into deities. In other words, they begin worthless but they only gain relevance if you grant it. Therefore, don't grant it relevance. Don't grant it any type of uh, sacredness. Okay, I'm going to skip that next. Rashi, when you slaughter a peace offering to the Lord, you shall slaughter it for your acceptance. Rashi explains, this passage is stated only to teach us that the offerings must be slaughtered with the intent that they be eaten within this time, which we said was a two-day window. 
For if you think that this passage comes to fix a time limit for eating them, this cannot be so, for it has already been stated. And if a sacrifice is a vow or voluntary donation, it may be eaten, etc. Leviticus 7. So we've already had that before about the time limit of eating a sacrifice. Here it's telling us that the intention when you bring it has to be that I have to eat it in the next day or two. You shall slaughter for your acceptance. The very outset of your slaughtering must be with the intent. Again, these verses are all about intention. Must be with the intent that it is for the purpose of causing contentment to God as it were for your acceptance by Him. For if you think an invalidating thought regarding it, says God, the sacrifice will not gain your acceptance before me. You have to know that you're bringing a shlomim offering, a peace offering for God's pleasure, for God's acceptance. Otherwise, if you think about, if you think it's a different offering, then you're not going to, um, then you're not going to, uh, to, to have satisfied the, the offering. All right, our rabbis, that's the simple meaning. Our rabbis, however, next Rashi learned from here that if someone was involved in another activity and accidentally slaughtered, okay? So for example, if he threw a knife and in its path it slaughtered an animal, designated for a holy sacrifice. It is invalid because in the context of sacrifice, one must intend to slaughter. Again, a crazy scenario, but it's theoretically possible. What's the scenario? Imagine somebody is throwing knives. I don't know if that's recommended. Someone's throwing knives and an animal walks by, stops at the right moment, and the knife goes by and hits it at the right angle. Unbelievable. Perfect incision, slaughters the animal. It was slated for a sacrifice, but the, the knife thrower wasn't intending to slaughter it for God. It was just throwing a knife. But now it's slaughtered and it had been designated for an offering. Are we good? No, we're not good. Intention. The mitzvah is not just to slaughter an animal for an offering, but to intend when you slaughter it that this will be for an offering to Hashem. And that's what we learned from these verses about the kavan, about the intention. There's a phrase, and we learned this in the meditation course, recently the JLI meditation course, mitzvot tzrichin kavana. Every mitzvah requires intention. If you do an accidental mitzvah, yeah, it's not, I mean, some exceptions to the rule, you still get the mitzvah, but otherwise, typically, you have to have the intention. It's important to have the intention when we do a mitzvah. Okay. Rabbi R. Yes. I've got a good note that explains that maybe. Uh, yeah. This is from Hulan, whatever Hulan is. The Talmud attracted. Okay. It says, it teaches us that if a person performs the act of slaughter or any other act of the sacrificial procedure without realizing that he is performing the act, the act is invalid. For instance, if he waved a knife and it happened to cut the throat of an animal designated for not, as an offering, the offering is invalid. According to this interpretation of the rabbis, uh, is understood as with your will. The word ritzon has a similar meaning uh, to that above. Good. Excellent. All right, let's move on to verse... I guess you could do that, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. All right, let's move on to... <clears throat> excuse me, to the next verse. <clears throat> verse number six. Um, it may be eaten on the day you slaughter. When you slaughter it, you must slaughter with the intent. Again, all of these verses are about intention. With the intent that you will eat it within the time limit, which I've already fixed for you. God had already communicated that regarding whichever particular sacrifice. Okay, and if you eat it on the third day, then it's abominable. Uh, abominable. Um, abomination. The abomination. Okay, yeah, it's not good. I'm going to skip that Rashi. Whoever eats it shall bear his sin. Okay, Scripture is referring to a sacrifice actually left over past its time limit. But one is not punished by excision in the case of a sacrifice slaughter with the intention of eating it outside its permitted location. So it's about time, not space. For Scripture has already excluded this case from the punishment of excision as mentioned above. Rather, this verse is referring to actual nosa, which is leftovers. Um, and how do we learn this? We'll, we'll leave that for later. So what's the, hold one second. So what's the point? The point is that there's two elements with regard to eating the sacrificial meat. It has to be eaten in the right place and within the right time frame. If you eat it outside of the right place, it's a problem. If you eat it outside of the time frame, it's a problem. But each one has its own consequence. The consequence that we're talking about here about spiritual excision Rashi clarifies is only referring to 
eating it outside of the time frame and not outside of the correct place. That's still not good, but that's not what we're talking about here. Yeah. This discussion about intention. Uh, I remember having a discussion with the, the rabbi who was at, uh, was at uh, Harris Teeter about uh, if milk is dropped into a pot of soup by, ex- by a mother, the pot of soup is not made trace. I said, well, that means you can put a little bit of milk in the soup. He said, no, it's intention. Correct. So, does that, so is that where this comes from? That comes from? I mean, a little bit, a little bit. It's not exactly. It's not exactly the same. For that, okay. Look. So what you're referring to is if you're cooking a pot of chicken soup and a drop of milk falls in, then oh no, now what? So milk and meat is it the whole? I got to throw out the whole thing and the. So we say if it's less, if the milk drop of milk is less than one sixtieth of the larger mixture, larger measure of of the of the meat or the chicken mixture then it's kosher. Why? Because we consider it bottle, which means it's nullified. Okay? So that's, so it's considered to be nullified. But if you put it there intentionally, how is it going to be nullified? The whole nullification works because you didn't want it to be there. You didn't intend for it to be there. You don't, you don't, you still don't want it to be there. I, you would rather what wouldn't be there, and that's it. But if you mix it in intentionally, then why'd you do that? Because you want it to be there. Well, if you want it to be there, how is it ever going to be nullified? In other words, if you want it to be there, then which is why, by the way, sherry casks with, with scotch is problematic. At least to some it's problematic. It's a very complicated topic in modern Jewish law. Um, scotch, single malt scotch that is aged in sherry casks. So there are some rabbis that say it's problematic. Why? Because sherry is not Typically, your typical sherry cask is not going to be kosher. Um, and now you have scotch that's sitting, aging in sherry casks. So the question is, how much sherry? So somebody might say, well, you have a lot of scotch and a little bit of sherry that's, in the, that's, in the, that's absorbed in the walls of the cask. Well, what is that measurement, number one? Number two, so you want to say it's batal b'shishim, it's nullified. Well, one second. How could it be nullified if it's intentional? You're literally putting the, the scotch there to pick up the flavor of the sherry. Otherwise, and you're advertising on the bottle. Agent sherry casks. Why would you do that if you don't want it? But then you could say the only, the pro, the only problem of intentionally trying to be... Null, try, the only time that you can't intentionally nullify something is if you're nullifying it. What if somebody else did it already? I didn't do it. I didn't age. If I age in sherry casks, it's one thing. But Glenn Livet did it. It's not me. Don't look at me. I didn't do it. So is it kosher? It's complicated back and forth. Some rabbis, we're talking about like leaders in the field of kashras. Some say it's a problem. It's questionable. Some say no problem. Famously, a number of years ago, when this first kind of came up, the London Betin said that we don't have a problem with it. If anybody feels like it's a problem, Please give us your sherry cask scotch and we'll drink it. That's what the London bet in at some, I don't know if they still sing that tune, but at some point they said, no problem. If you don't think that it's acceptable and you have some in your house, just bring it by us. We'll say lechai. Anyway, um, but I guess London is close to Scotland, which, you know, maybe they, uh, there's websites of people that have gone over there to investigate and see how much sherry is. Some say that there's still sherry sitting there. The bottom, the liquid sitting there in the casks. Some, well, it, it depends, right? Some casks come in. I mean, these are imported from, where's sherry made? Spain? Yeah? Spain? I think so, yeah. Spain. It's, it's Amorosa. Yeah, yeah, it's like Spain. So some, some casks are shipped to Scotland whole and they may have some residual actual, forget the absorption of the walls they have some actual uh, sherry at the bottom but some are this they take apart the casks ship them flat-ish and then put them back together again obviously there's no liquid left um, you know once you take it apart it's a very complicated topic it's an interest it's a it's a very interesting topic. maybe one day we'll do that maybe one we'll have a class on on single malt and the issues, you know, that, that might be there. I'm not saying there is, but the the issues. I'm giving you a if taste. Age it, if you're going to age it in the cask, the only reason is to pick up residual flavor of the sherry. 
Correct. If you're picking a residual flavor of the sherry, there has to be sherry in the. That's wood. it. That's it. And how can you say that it's nullified? What kind of nullification is it if you literally want it? It's literally desired. But the consumer might say, I don't want it. But the manufacturer wanted it. I have nothing to do with it. But then why'd you buy it? I mean, it gets complicated. It gets complicated. Rabbi yeah. Can I, can I add one more thing to that? For sure. But it all goes back because sherry is a wine. And, and it would have to, be a, have, have, to be a, have to have to be in the supervision. Correct. To be kosher. But it's really not sherry. Because there, is, there are not, he was Amorosa sherry cask. There isn't close to enough Amarosa sherry made to to satisfy the demand for sherry cask. So what they do is they rent the the, the, uh, the distillers rent the sherry. Trucks come by, they pump out the sherry. It flavors the cask. It then it's then return after so much time it's return it's picked back up. It was never meant to be drunk, which pretty much says it's not a wine. It's a flavoring. I hear it's you. It's not a wine. It's not meant to be drunk. Mark's got a new angle here. This is, I don't know if it's an angle or a conspiracy theory or a... <laughs> the great sherry scam. It was never wine. It's just flavoring. I, listen, I have, I'll, I'll tell you, I have no idea. I am not, I've never been there. I have, I, I have no idea how this works. I mean, I have some idea of the, of the considerations, but this, this detail... I have no idea, you know, maybe each distillery is different, or each sherry cask uh, um, source is different. I, I can't weigh in on that. But it would be an interesting consideration if it was if it was never actually manufactured as wine, but only as, I hear your point, it would be, that would be an interesting consideration. But, you know, we'll see. Google, if you want to Google this and just go down the rabbit hole of back and forth of rabbis, uh, modern, uh, an issue of a lot of modern um, contention, so just Google, like, uh, single malt, scotch, sherry, cask, kosher, halacha, whatever. Just use those combination of those words and let the games pop some popcorn and, uh, and, 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 and enjoy. All right, back inside. Uh, we're going to just do the next few verses and close it out. So here we go. You shall not, um, uh, sorry, when you reap the harvest... Of your, of your land, don't reap the cor fully reap the corner of your field. Rashi explains, meaning that one should leave the corner at the edge of his field unharvested. Leave the food unharvested. Don't touch it. Leave it for the poor and the stranger amongst you. All right. Gleaning the harvest, this refers to stocks that fall down at the time of harvest. How many stocks constitute like it, the stocks that fall down? One or two. Three, however, do not constitute leket, and the owner may gather them for himself. So if you're harvesting and you're lifting up bundles and they fall down, if it's one or two, don't pick them up. Leave them for someone that needs it. If it's uh, three or more, then okay, then it's already a whole bundle. Then you can, then you can pick them up. The point here is, and by the way, the, how much is a corner of your field? It doesn't specify. It doesn't give us like a, a radius or a, an acreage over there. It should be, be as generous as possible to leave. The point is, it's, more, it's less about giving you a specific amount of food and amount of land to leave for those that need. And it's more about the concept of thinking of others, even as we're, you know, harvesting our own crops. It's like, okay, good, enjoy your crops and make money and eat it and enjoy it and sell it and whatever. But don't forget those that are in need, right? You got you to think about everybody. Um, Rabbi Ari, I'm yeah. to interrupt you again. Very, very interesting note. Taurus Kohanim, it says, the corner to be left aside for the poor must be left aside at the end of the reaping. One may not designate a corner beforehand. That's interesting. That's interesting, yeah. I guess the timeline matters. Maybe you have to make sure that it came in nicely before you leave it. You can't leave something that never came in. If you said, okay, I'm, I'm going to designate this corner, and then maybe it never doesn't grow well, maybe that, yeah, that doesn't work. Okay, when you glean, don't glean the fallen grapes. Again, um, you shall not, Rashi, you shall not take the small clusters. And, uh, yeah, don't take the small clusters. And these are identifiable. Um, individual grapes, individual grapes will fall off at the time of the vintage. See, look, we're talking about winemaking. Look at that. I am the Lord your God, Rashi says, a judge. I am a judge who exacts punishment. And for this sin, wow, look at this. God says, for this sin... Basically, for not giving to those in need, 
I will exact from you nothing less than your souls. She, as it is said, do not rob a poor man, for the Lord will plead their, ca- their cause and rob those who rob them of life. Proverbs. Don't take food out of someone who is in need. And, and in this case, oh, it's my field. It's my vineyard. Uh, God says, yeah, I don't care. Leave it anyway. And don't, make sure you're not taking everything because then it's going to be a problem. All right, you shall not steal, Rashi says. This is an admonition against someone stealing money. While do not steal in the Ten Commandments is an admonition against stealing people, kidnapping. You with me on this? When the, when the Ten Commandments says do not steal, it's not referring to money. It's referring to people, lives. Do not steal like human trafficking, kidnapping. Here it's about stealing money. Okay, Rashi explains that it's, it's about con- context and the Ten Commandments. All of those are capital crimes, murder, adultery, and, and theft. So obviously the theft there is not money, but it's kidnapping human beings, which is problematic. You shall not deny falsely, Rashi says. Since Scripture says and he denies it, he must pay the principal and an additional fifth of its value. We know the punishment involved, but where do we find the admonition against denying a rightful claim? Therefore, Scripture says you shall not deny falsely. And that, so that's the, 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 so here in this verse, we have the warning. And then earlier on in Leviticus chapter 5, toward the beginning of the book, we have the consequence of denying falsely, which is you have to pay the principal and an additional fifth as a, as a penalty. Um, you shall not lie. Again, this is the admonition against swearing falsely right here. Um, you shall not steal, deny falsely, lie, and swear falsely. Rashi says, if you steal you'll eventually come to deny falsely. And consequently, you will come to lie and then swear falsely. So that's the way it is. That's, the, that's the, um, what we would call the progression of sins. First comes stealing, and then you'll, you'll deny it because you don't want to get busted. And then you're going to lie about it, and then you're going to swear falsely about it. So one sin leads to a bunch of others. So what's the moral of the story? Friends, let's not steal. Let's not do any of these things, but it all starts with covering up a crime. Don't do the crime, then you won't have to cover it up. Um, you shall not swear falsely by my name. Um, bum, 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 bum. Skip that. You shall not oppress your fellow. This refers to one who withholds a hired worker's wages. Somebody works for you for the day, and they're expecting to get paid, and then you say, nope, I'm not, I don't have the money for you. I'm not going to pay you. That's not okay. That's called oppressing your fellow. Um, yeah, don't, don't keep it until the morning. Though, So the verse is speaking about, as I mentioned, a worker hired for a day whose departure from his work is at sunset. So you, I, 6 a.m., you hire somebody to work in your field, and at 7 p.m., they go home. They're done. You hire them for the day. So, therefore, the time for him to collect his wages is the entire night, and the employer has till dawn to pay him. So you have, okay, you don't have to pay him before he leaves, but you have to pay him that, that, that evening. And when's the cutoff? Before daybreak the next morning. But elsewhere, Scripture says you shall give him his wage on his day and not let the sun set over it. Aha! Ooh, which seems to contradict our verse. That seems to say you should give it to him before nightfall. However, that verse is speaking about a worker hired for the night, the completion of whose work is at the break of dawn. Therefore, the time for him to collect his wages is the entire day, the, day, the following day, because the Torah gave, him, gave the employer time, namely an own a 12-hour period, to seek money to pay his workers. So essentially, the Torah says you got to pay him on time. And what is on time? Within the next 12-hour segment. So if the fellow worked for you from dawn to dusk, you have the next period of time to pay him until the next, until daybreak. After that, now you're in trouble. If he worked for you overnight, he did the night shift, then you have the following day to pay get the money together and pay him. But if sun sets, then you got a problem. That's the way it works. Yeah, basically, 12, approximately a 12-hour period with which to pay your worker. But after that, that's a violation of this mitzvah. You shall not curse a deaf person, Rashi says. From this person, I, from this verse, I only know that one may not curse a deaf person. But how do I know that it includes cursing any person even if not deaf? Therefore, Scripture says, you shall not curse among your people. But if this is so that it's not exclusive to deaf people, why does it say here a deaf person? You know, it should just say, you can't curse anyone. The answer is that just as a deaf person is special insofar as he is alive, likewise, one is prohibited from cursing anyone who is alive. This excludes cursing a dead person for he is not alive. Wow. 
Sounds like cursing a dead person is not included in this prohibition, which to be honest, sounds a little strange because certainly it does not seem like good behavior to curse the dead. It certainly doesn't seem good for, uh, well, shall we use a, a not Jewish term called karma, does not seem to be good, good vibes to uh, juju, whatever it's called, to, uh, to curse the dead. Be that as it may, the, the point here that Rashi is really bringing out is that um, cursing is, a, is prohibited is across the board. According to other commentaries, why Rashi has his own thing from, from the Medrash here, but why, according to others, why do we specify a deaf person? Because a person might say, I'm giving you a new interpretation. A person might say, well, a person can't hear it anyway. <laughs> they don't know what I'm saying, so I can curse them. The Torah says it doesn't matter that they can't hear it. You can't say it. You with me on that? Just because they can't hear it doesn't mean that you're allowed to say it. You, if it's wrong, if it's, if it's insensitive, if it's ugly, don't say it because what kind of person does that make you? So they'll never hear it. Let's just say they'll never find out. Does that make it okay? Right? If I committed... I remember somebody once asked me, it was a Kabbalah and Coffee. It wasn't that long ago. Maybe last year. It was like COVID times. It was a small, smaller crowd in person. Somebody asked me, um, you know, there's like a philosophical, ethical philosophical question. What if you could, you know, commit a sin? I think this specific example was like um, steal from a business, whatever it is, and they would never find out. They would never find out. Uh, but, but they, imagine a scenario, I'm setting up a scenario where they would never find out and they wouldn't even really get hurt too badly from it. Maybe because they never found out. However, however you can imagine a, a theoretical scenario. Could you do it? You know what the answer is? No. Why? Because theft is not only about the other one, it's about you. Cursing, right? Saying something negative about someone is not about them hearing it only. That's a problem also. But it's about you saying it. Don't be that. Don't de desensitize yourself to the, pro to the point that you're uttering things like that. Don't don't degrade yourself to the point that you're speaking ill and cursing others. So that's a powerful teaching from the Torah. It's not about them hearing, it's about us saying it. All right, you shall not place a stumbling block before the blind, before a person who is blind regarding a matter, Rashi says, that that's not only literal, it's figurative. Somebody who is unaware, so you shall not give advice that is improper to him, for him. By the way, this is breaking right now. These are stories that are going on. Two days, 2022 stories, May 2nd, 2022. There's stories like this. I'll, I'll tell you what I mean in a second. I'll tell you what I mean. For instance, do not say to someone, sell your field and buy a donkey with the proceeds, while in truth you plan to cheat him since you yourself will take it from him by lending him money and taking the donkey as collateral. He will then not be able to take the field because a previous creditor has a lien on it. That's an elaborate scenario, but the point is, don't give someone bad advice because you want to profit off of it because that's putting a stumbling block before the blind. So now what's going on in the world? You may know about cryptocurrency and blockchain and NFTs. One of the latest situations in NFT, there's now, again, I'm going to use terminology here that if you're not familiar with this, it's going to sound like, like just completely alien terminology, but it's, it's all real stuff. I actually read an article about this this morning in conjunction with a podcast that I heard last night about a similar topic. Right now, there's a lot of, there are a lot of like groups. You have to be in the groups, NFT groups and, and social media groups that will talk about something going on. So there's this Bored Apes Club. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with this. A Bored Apes Club or Apes Yacht Club, something like that. It's an NFT that has pictures of uh, illustrations of monkeys and everything, and people are buying it and snapping it up, and celebrities are owning it. It's a whole, it's a whole trend, super trendy. And now the same group that has this Bored Apes Club is now, um, and let me just fact check myself to make sure I have the right phrase. Is it Bored Apes Club, or am I getting that wrong? Bored Ape, sorry, Bored Ape Yacht Club. I knew there was yacht in there somewhere. It's for Bored Ape Yacht Club. A collection of 10,000 unique board, uh, board Ape NFTs living in the Ethereum blockchain, blah, blah, blah. And now they created a metaverse. Again, all these words, right? Metaverse, NFT, Ethereum blockchain, metaverse, and they're selling space in this metaverse. 
where you can buy space in the metaverse. But to buy space in the metaverse, you have to buy a certain type of currency that they're creating. And to get the currency, you have to pay for fuel to mine that currency. Are you with me on this? So you, in order to buy the land, you have to have the, the currency. To buy the currency, you have to get the fuel. To get the fuel, you have to actually put down real cash or, or, or other cryptocurrency to get that. The bottom line is, what's happening is that people are buying it and then flipping it for double, triple, quadruple, whatever it is, exponentially more than they originally paid for. And then those buyers are hoping that they'll flip it in turn because you're now holding on to something that's an asset. Well, my friends, according to many, a lot of these situations are classic, what they call pump and dump schemes, right? Where it's being pumped up as, a, as an asset. Oh, you buy this now because these NFTs are worth whatever it is and people are buying it. And then the, the initial group is like creating all the noise and the buzz and they're buying out all, this, all, the, all the supply and then selling it for a profit and someone at the end is going to hold the bag. The point is, here's the point. If you know that there's no value in this and you tell someone that there is value just so that you can make a profit, you are putting a stumbling block in front of the blind. Are you with me on this? That was a very elaborate example of what's going on. And I'm not accusing anyone in particular of this. I'm just saying that according to many that are observing what's going on, the, there are, the, the, a lot of these schemes, a lot of these uh, scenarios are people who are literally creating bust, selling hype on something in order to turn an initial profit and then leave somebody else holding the bag, which is classic violation of the Torah. If you know that it doesn't have value, you can't tell someone it has value. It's not only lying. I mean, it's lying. It's theft. And it's placing a stumbling block before the blind, which is a particularly egregious form of this. All right, let's continue inside. Um, hold on. Let me, all right, let's continue and actually conclude inside because we are getting a little bit late over here. All right, here we go. Um, and you shall fear your God. Why is this mentioned here? Oh, for the exact, exact reason why I mentioned my example. Because this matter of misadvising someone is not discernible by people, whether this person had good or evil intentions. And he can avoid being recriminated by his victim afterwards by saying, I meant well. A person could say, no, I thought, I thought these, the ape, the board ape yacht club metaverse really did have objective value. I really thought so. You can always say that you thought it, it, was, it was legit. Therefore, concerning this, it says, and you shall fear your God, i.e. God who knows your thoughts. Right? Fear God and therefore don't fool around. Likewise, concerning anyone known, anything known to the one who does it, but to which no one else is privy, Scripture says, and you shall fear your God. That means know that God is watching and act appropriately. And if that doesn't work, know that Mark Zuckerberg is watching. All right, friends. Anyway, Facebook also has its own metaverse and Zuckbucks, his own currency. It's a whole... 2022 is an interesting time to be alive. It's like the upgraded Ponzi scheme. It's, a, it's essentially. Essentially. I mean, I don't know if it's Ponzi as much as it is just pumping up straight up. It's, it's hyping something up as having value. And then like going through like one or two iterations of like, wow. So the first people bought it for a hundred and then they sold it for a thousand and then they sold it for 5,000. So now, you know, Joe consumer says, I want to get in on this cause I'll, I'll buy it for 5,000, but then I could sell it for 10. Oh, oh, whoops. There wasn't actually, there was actually no value, but everyone along the way, all the insiders are making those initial gains. And then the, the one holding it. All right. Anyway. Listen, Halavai, everybody should make it rich, and all of those holding on to NFTs should be wealthy beyond imagination, and don't forget to tithe. Anyway, thank you very much for joining me today for uh, Sadaka. Don't forget to, uh, not don't forget, don't forget Sadaka. Thanks for joining me today for uh, DPP and NFT, and looking forward to seeing you tomorrow, same bad time, same bad channel, Tuesday at noon, for the next section and the next adventure in Kedoshim. All right, quick announcement. Tonight, no RCS. It's been postponed to next week, next Monday night, RCS live and, in, and on Zoom. And then tomorrow night, wine and cheese. Wine and cheese. I know some of you right here are joining us. 
Join us. If you're not yet signed on, jump on this. It's going to be amazing. We got the wine and the cheese, and it is delish. All right, multi-sensory experience tomorrow night, 7.30 p.m. Uh, not too late to register. All right, we'll see you then. We'll see you tomorrow. Take care, everybody. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Pleasure. Take care. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at intownjewishacademy.org and on YouTube at Intown Jewish Academy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.